This is a bonus season of Favorite Librarian, the podcast. As you know, this podcast is available everywhere. So stream, share, and be sure to like and leave me a comment to let me know how you most resonate with this great conversation. Let's get started, friends. And welcome back to the bonus season. This episode is entitled Healing the angry part of trauma and wrestling with ourselves. Before we get into this discussion, I want to give a a polite disclaimer. We're going to discuss areas of trauma, mental health, but specifically grief and shame and how that affects multiple communities and identities of the queer spectrum, but also addressing spiritual trauma, family estrangement, and the bouts of internal reflection and that internal dialogue. Um, For myself and other black queer femmes or feminine presenting women or person, redefining queerness, blackness, and femhood is a revolutionary act. You know, it is entirely my whole heart and greatest hope that the barriers that exist for us are so far removed that as younger generations come along these folks as they move throughout the world and wherever they are within their small world that they have learned that it hasn't always been this way and that through with progress and other tools and organizing fellowship however that looks like for you but also just being on the same accord for not only liberation, amplification, and the empowerment, but the upliftment and the pursuit of understanding of others to better understand self. And you so and so with this conversation, uh, healing the angry part of trauma and wrestling with ourselves, I really want to first discuss it with trusting myself with myself, you know, through some of my experiences my choices conscious or conscious or whether I was thinking forwardly I have always enforced I've always become aware of situations that have forced me to engage myself in an intimate way where I am being not only vulnerable but I'm receiving love I'm on the receiving era the receiving area without having to warrant or give an excuse or do much labor for not only the attention, but for the love effortlessly. And as someone like myself that moves in a space as a librarian and someone that works in media, but someone that also organizes in queer spaces, I find myself running away from trauma, but but trauma is present in not only new and occurring experiences, but in ways that I don't address them directly. You know, I live by this motto that I also have on my um, refrigerator where it says deflect, defend, and deny. And then there's a line underneath it that says address it. And the reason why it's written that way is because no matter in what way that you deny, deflect, or defend something, the bottom line is that if you don't address it, it will address you. And, you know, just in trying to be conscious of that, I've seen how there are many tests before me that not only challenged me to be authentically 10 toes down on the things that I believe in or politically pursue or the politics that I believe 
provide margins, guidances, invisible guidances that let me know, okay, hey, Forrest, you know, you're going a little bit OV overboard or you're doing something that's a little too much or, hey, you need to lean in more on this conversation or, hey, you're not very aware on certain, you know, Asian or Hispanic traditions and you sound a little tone deaf. You need to check in more, not only with your, you know, Asian or Hispanic friends, but, you know, educate yourself on certain cultures. Gain those experiences by yourself without having to be in company of your friends that you know which is a form of tokenism to engage specific things. You can share it up with them upon it becoming a part of a conversation, but just directly bringing it up. No, I mean, that's like, you know, someone bringing up, you know, like, Oh, didn't your parents adopt you? Like it's a random topic that's valid, but your curiosity is steamed in something that's self-serving and not selfless. And so when it comes to trusting myself, in the efforts of running away from trauma in order to avoid and ignore them, I've learned that I have physical reactions that I cannot deny or even, yeah, deny. Because when I address them in the sense of figuring out what does this reaction look like, and I realize it's this anxiety that's not only manifest but saturated my being. You know, the body keeps score and the body remembers and not only does the body remember, but what you don't address subconsciously and spiritually and mentally and emotionally also stores and lives is archived in a sense in the body and through how we not only process grief and shame, but also how we emotionally are intimate with ourselves, not only physically, but emotionally, psychologically, are we able to tell ourselves truth without it being of a response or reaction? Is it just simply forthcoming is it not out of shame because you have to you know be hyper vigilant but also have the ability to discernly read the room but what are you doing with this information and is it solely self-serving you know the the fear of processing grief is so rooted in so much of the, the literature that I read but also in some of that survivor's guilt this you know in spite of surviving what I've been through and endured and maneuvered it's this guilt that I have not only to address what I've been through but that not only am I yeah I'm a bad bitch because yeah I've gotten through it but like the post work is what's most important like yeah getting through it you got through it congratulations but it's almost like the climb of reading yeah you read that's going up the mountain. Now you got to go down and apply and repeat. That's going down. And with this, you know, the fear of processing grief, you know, whether you see it in biblical work like the New Testament over the old, or you see a processing of grief like with Toni Morrison's novel of like taking charge and authority of life, you know, seen in Beloved or seen in the bluest eye asphyxiations on specific things because that's your ability to control not only your narrative but what you consume and consider beautiful beauties in the eye of the beholder not only physically but what you consider beautiful as in someone's soul or spirit you know for example um i have a friend his name is quasi um and I believe that one of his, you know, most beautiful qualities is his ability to hold space in pursuit of understanding someone outside of himself. And he taught me that in college 
the way I would say some of the most crazy antonine things and he would hold space and we would have a serious conversation he would take me seriously and when I realized you know hey he's not like having reactions to me that other people do I realized oh wow he's giving me a, an opinion that not only is from a, a pointed well-read but also balanced perspective but he's not attached to his ideas to say okay hey I may be wrong in the pursuit of other insight I may need to let go of certain information to gain experience and insight that provides me a balance because not all information you consume is something you can't apply and so and trusting myself and trusting myself there is some survival's guilt because of the spiritual abuse I have endured earlier in my life you know for example Prayer, I believe in the power of prayer, but I believe also in the power of numbers, whether you fellowship in numbers or collectively in certain ways. This may be not ritualistic or of the tradition or standard of other uh, structures of faith or practice of spirituality and or I believe that for myself, the laying of hands or specifically interventions are a bit intimidatingly scary and overwhelming as someone that has endured certain religious and spiritual environments that are specifically religious and spiritually targeted and focused there are certain things that engage a physical reaction and that looks like not only is there an increase of anxiety but I have no control it feels like I've lost control over my sensations and sensory and sensory ability to engage my body but the world and so it feels like someone did like a hard reset on my computer like instead of them doing auto control delete they automatically just held their hand on the power button for 30 seconds that's how it feels like or not 30 seconds more like three to five seconds to do a reboot and it's like hey I wasn't ready for a reboot but damn you know and in that in that I'm not going to lie through how I've responded to trauma, spiritual abuse and trauma early on without the tools I needed to cope and self-soothe and ground and check in and to reassure myself and to provide myself assurance that I'm physically present and I'm, I'm presently worthy and I'm worthy in all extensions of myself, whether I'm understood or I understand myself, I realized, okay, the laying of hands by people I don't know or when someone is a stranger and they're laying hands on me and they don't know me for me that is kind of scary because of the things that I have endured and I'm not there yet with how I process and really not only acknowledge the source of why certain things provide me or summon a physical reaction but I know that hey I don't like that and so through some of the choices I've made after having multiple body and physical reactions like that, I realized I began to drink more heavily. And I'm not a heavy drinker. You know, I've always, because of the environment I've been in, you know, the South permits a masquerade for uses of vices. You know, I've known people that have done from methamphetamine to hydrocodone to whippets from the age of, you know, damn near really 11 up until I left my hometown area. I remember being in high school and hearing about someone 
you know, overdosing. And what was it? Uh, Woodshop or home economics class. It was on the home ec wing, you know, just from not, excuse me, not hearing. They did. They had to go to the nurse's office, but was later okay because they had to transition to an alternative school. But, you know, we're not here to talk about them. You know, myself, not that I've had a struggle with vices or different, um, different outlets that are solely recreational. Um, but I've realized that how I respond to certain things when I feel as though I've lost control of my body because of certain traumas I have processed or haven't processed mentally or emotionally that are showing up in the in the spiritual and physical realm. That's when I realized like, okay, even when I put myself in places where I've been in physical or life danger, there's things that I'm realizing like, okay, Forrest, do you trust yourself with yourself? Like, do you trust yourself to make proper decisions that benefit you? And so that leads me into, you know, am I safe? Rediscovering self in new environments. You know, it's a feeling that I'm chasing in the world. I'm, you know, chasing community. I'm chasing companionship. I thrive and cherish off of creativity. You know, these three C's, community, creativity, you know, that collective work, what it looks like to just uplift others and also myself, but also resting in my body, controlling my ability not to jump to conclusions when I lack clarity or when I'm constantly trying to find meaning behind something or define something when entirely it may not even have a specific meaning or intentional meaning. And so when I rest in my body with that, that calmness is scary knowing when to name harm and verbalizing a need or help has been very scary because as I'm rediscovering my comfort level in new environments, I'm constantly asking myself, asking myself, am I safe? How safe am I? Who am I safe around? How long have I been safe around this person? You know, when I answer that question, and let me say this, you know, that's a question I've had to ask myself and my family indirectly when it comes to supporting not only me but other queer people and other people of the black experience and also of the religious or structured religion or spiritual faith practice and I don't like some of their answers because you know threading and living with my anxiety throughout my experiences to heal I've had to detach myself from the idea and the identity of harm and hurt, you know, I, you know, there was a time where a lot of my identity was centered around my hurt, not the healing process from the hurt and harm. And so I was constantly leading with my identity from the hurt and harm I had endured instead of the healing process. And that's when I was able to truly acknowledge the fight, the flight, the freeze and the fawn effect. You know, for myself, I historically have been a, a fight and a flighter like I, I usually leave a situation before it gets too bad or I'm a fighter like I'm going to fight this shit out like if it's me or you it's always going to be me it's always going to be me if it's me or you it's always going to be me that was my mentality growing up like hey like if it comes to me or you eating I'm eating if it comes to me and you living I'm living if it comes to me and you being happy I'm going to be happy like that was my 
Ooh, that was my mentality with a lot of things because of the environment I was in. It, you know, I grew up not only, not in a specifically animalistic, but a very militant Christian based and hyper religious. You know, I remember, uh, we're going to, we'll talk about that if I feel comfortable about it, but you know, in that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, you know, where is the work that I need to do is where I question myself because in some situations I find myself being the freezer where I just, I'm so paralyzed by what I've heard of the information that it's hard for me to just begin the process to process (laughs) and to comprehend and then to respond and then to engage and react and then educate myself, empower myself and the other person that shared their truth or just their feelings And so when you're a survivor of certain situations and specifically abuse, there is a shame that you accumulate and how you store, as I mentioned earlier, archive the hurt and trauma or what you've endured. And so this respectability politics that we that we engage when, you know, we honor thy parents, our guardians is also some of the beginning of the foundation of wrestling with ourselves tradition over truth. Tradition over cultural customs, you know, community and authentically being seen and heard in spaces that we've always been around, but have felt invisible in certain ways. You know, there's this um, book that I picked up called The Invisible Archives by Margaret Galvin. It's a queer and feminist visual cultural title that explores much of the 1980s and decades before and after that and with its cartoons and its archival um ephemera and also just visual content it is beautiful and you know one of my favorite uh, portions of this is would definitely have to be the newspaper cartoonist uh chapter three with queer grassroots networks But also, I love, love, love chapter five, which is the uh, photographer and curator, um, Nan Golden's witness to HIV and AIDS. And that is just a beautiful testimony to being not only a sister, but on the sidelines. You know, one of the greatest importance of the acronym LGBTQ is it signifies our history and not only the American public, but also um, intersectionality and community organizing. The L is not only for not first solely because, you know, women are first and a lot of things are to support femininity, but during the time of the gay rights movement in the 1950s and 60s during this um, century, there was this a lot of segregation between not only gay, lesbian, but solely entirely of other identities, especially the T and not the T, trans, transgender, um, trans identifying, but also gender nonconforming and fluid. And so these identities were polarized because they had to be put into a category to be seen also within our community, the LGBTQIA plus community during those times. And so when the HIV and AIDS epidemic happened towards not only the early to mid 80s moving into the height of the 90s but uh, well actually I I, kind of want to say the late 70s because there were in some instances certain small cases but it wasn't publicized or notarized or did people know much like the pursuit of defining and treating the um 
Ebola virus, but also what happened with COVID, the pandemic. But during the time of the 80s and 90s, there was a unification between the LGBTQIA plus community. And if it wasn't for the camaraderie, the kinship of lesbian support, you know, there wouldn't have been a family environment specific houses or organizing or unity or amplification or circularization of resources not only medical you know mental health because you know after president reagan mental health rehabilitation and centers were terminated they were no longer funded by social welfare programs or the federal government or statewide so a lot of these safe spaces were not only backed by a lot of queer women but primarily lesbian women and gender non-conforming and non-binary folk primarily feminine presenting but they were also there so from anita cornwell to audrey lord to people like alice walker um and the list goes on and on. Um, also a part of tonight's discussion, I highly suggest you pick up Queering Sexual Violence, Radical Voices from Within the Anti-Violent Movement, edited by Jennifer Patterson. It is a beautiful title that just discusses queer experiences of not only violences, but often pushed to the margin, queer, transgender, and gender nonconforming survivors have been organized in anti-violent work since literally birth. And, but the title itself locates them at the center of anti-violent movements and creates a space for really their voices to be heard. And, you know, moving, you know, beyond and from dominant cisgendered and specifically, um, heteronormative narratives and the tradition of violence against women framework the book is just multi-gendered multi-racial but multi-layered and so I highly recommend you check it out it's great for disability uh, justice safe sex and sex worker rights healing justice radical justice uh, queer and trans liberations um, non-binary um, expression and gender self-determination and also um, believe it or not the prison industry industrial complex system and abolition through personal narratives and strategies of resistance healing but you know where there are systems institutions and communities and families that have failed a lot of queer folk this title queering sexual violence this title really truly cherishes upholds but yet it honors a multitudes of different lived non-binary gender non-conforming trans and queer experiences and it just shares that radical work of it being done outside of mainstream anti-violent and the non-profit industrial you know complex so definitely check um out that title but you know we've discussed whoo quite a lot um but when it comes, you know, something I want to circle back to is that with the respectability politics of honoring thy mother and wrestling with thyself, you know, a lot of that violence comes from how we protect others, but leave ourselves vulnerable. And as I mentioned before, a lot of that is seated with how we honor our parents or the people that are there for us, or if we're not privileged to have, you know, two parent households, because not seeing two parent households are far few in between with anyone, but to have two parents that are married consistently for decades and decades and decades is not as commonly seen with certain unities and that's okay you know however when we look at different constructions of family 
I often see that how someone prioritizes others happiness and joy, but yet honoring their their guardian or thy parents, there's a little bit of vulnerability that you're left unprotected because of your priority, your focus, how you visualize safety for others leaves you secondary. And so with that respectability politics, I've also learned that the silence of playing your role has also been in how I represented my sexuality, a separate and also with my gender. You know, I always leave with my sexuality. That's very common. You know, it's out there. Hey, I'm a queer woman and I'm a lesbian so I'm a lesbian I'm a lesbian I'm a lesbian I'm a lesbian I'm like I, I say it all the time it's in everything I do it's in everything I say it's in everything I write it's in the works I do it's how I organize so if you don't know how do you not know but I don't share how I I don't share my gender identity and you know a lot of people believe that this is a lack of trust they feel like hey you know love with conditions and warrants exists but in a safe space you can love without conditions or warrants to exist you can be loved without conditions you can be loved without a warrant to, to exist you exist simply to be loved and in return you can love too but yet the tragedy of being powerless and the harm formed by not addressing how helpless we have felt or alone we have felt with big emotions and in spite of processing what we have going on internally, not only with not only within personhood, sexuality, but yet gender, but yet also capable of prioritizing someone over ourselves to justify the respect of the politics of a hierarchy of a social structure or a familiar environment or a family environment. And so when it comes from myself to honoring thy parent, tradition over cultural customs plays a role in the tragedy of being powerless and that powerlessness and the harm from not addressing it you know instead dominant discourses of blackwashing homophobia reproduce colonial really strategies of othering associations of identities with violence fear shame and victimhood and when we discuss violence fear, shame, and victimhood. These things are not solely attached to the idea of homophobia, but also with xenophobia, transphobia, uh, a fear of blackness, but also anti-black. And as myself, a black lesbian and a black femme presenting person, often constructed as inevitable targets for these special crimes. You know, one thing I want to mention is my family estrangement and the weight of that you know when I'm in community whether I'm having coffee or working with a friend or I'm at a meeting organizing with friends and my peers for pride or front runners or gay magazine or something like that that fills my cup because I'm not able to truly be in community with someone like my my brother who I miss dearly I haven't physically seen my brother in a year and some change really going on two years I haven't heard from him he hasn't heard from me. Ooh. Tonight I'm drinking a rosé because it's going to be a tough night. It is, you know, I mentioned in a previous episode and also in the first episode of the bonus season, a favorite library on the podcast, that 
older versions of myself miss my little brother and my current self misses my little brother. You know, there are some days where I wonder, is he okay? Some days I worry like, you know, fuck him. You know, he did X, Y, and Z. He said X, Y, and Z. He's met X, Y, and Z. He stood on business for X, Y, and Z. He's been homophobic for years, X, Y, and Z. But there's parts of me that says, you know, that that survivor's guilt of after enduring certain spiritual abuse being like, hey, I survived, but he may not. And although he's masquerading that he's okay, I can tell he's not okay. I can tell he's alone. I can tell he's afraid. I can tell from the last time I saw him and, you know, not having family constantly around him because that's his choice. That is also the most haunting of it all. And sometimes distance is what is distinctively needed to grow and heal. But in some some areas, it feels like a dagger. And the weight of what that feels like. The ache that grows in your chest and grows until it tingles into your fingertips and warms the palms of your hands. And this hair that you didn't know existed on the back of your neck. It grows until you can feel it all the way into your lymph nodes and your thyroids. And it freezes your jaw. It's this... It's this paralyzing ache that's familiar. It's constant. And what feels like only a hug can dissolve. It's also a part of something that you don't want to shake because it's it's a part of a memory and a, and a, a dysfunctional attachment to memories that serve us nothing. But yet in remembrance, it shows us our closeness. We by disillusion believe that we had and you know a lot of the biblical stories let me say this especially in the new testament turmoil death plagues are stories from or of healing throughout the biblical sense healing comes after all this great deal of trauma and so for myself i've had to erase and yet be resilient throughout the experiences that I've been through, you know, as a queer person, I believe all, excuse me, I believe all queer people experience a second adolescence, not only as a queer person, but just in my allyship to other kinships of intersection and identities. I believe all queer folk go through a different adolescence, you know, um, for myself, you know, dating, you know, my last partner, there were certain things that I realized I tolerated that I thought were okay. But then I realized, oh, I didn't actually really appreciate that because, oh, when I really boiled down to it, I realized they were still part or going through the, the novice portion of their second adolescence through, you know, exploring their emotions with certain things or publicly having certain af- affection without in- engaging the double consciousness, not as a person of color, but as a queer person, you know, what that looks like to, to maneuver and navigate in a sense of just trying to be protective physically, but also emotionally simply in wanting to also be seen and heard by your, your loved one, the person you're with. And so growing up twice and learning how to maneuver life with new experiences 
is overwhelming. And for someone like myself that has anxiety, there was a book that really helped me, um, which explores masculine presenting and trans masculine bodies and queer folk. It's called The Buoyant Body, Narratives of Queer Black Boy and the Waters That Carry Them. It's an autobiographical account of Bobby Kendricks. It is a wonderful collection of just great poems and really brief um, novellas that explores boyhood, B-O-I-H-O-O-D, which is masculine presenting trans masculine, gender nonconforming, fluid, or two-spirited folks. And the title, This Buoyant Body, B-O-I, and then Y-A-N-T, Buoyant, I love, it just talks about just floating. I'm not going to spoil it because I will. Ugh. But just definitely check it out. If you're a friend of mine, hit me up. You can borrow one of my copies. If not, please check it out, request or demand it. Also, let me say this. As a reader, if you want to save money and have access to books in the free way, one, gain membership or subscription with your public library. Two, inquire with some of the higher education academic libraries near you about their visitor passes and visitor access to specific research. And three, demand requests and check out books that you request or books that you're interested in. This shows demand. And always, when you check out a book, always demand a book go to their request box or section or go to their email make sure you have it in or like once every two months send them a list hey i want these books i don't see it since you don't have a request um box or area i'm submitting it here let me know if there's a proper channel or checks and balances to submit my suggestion mm. oh this rosé is good shout out to dj he provided this rosé for the christmas or the halloween party we didn't drink it, but I'm drinking it now. Shout out to you, friend. Oh, Lord, you probably can hear every little gulp. <laughs> but when it comes to second adolescence for queers, raising your inner child and approaching what has once been snubbed or overlooked because of the discretion or secrecy of hiding and hiding was a way not that you weaponize your truth and identity or sexuality or preference because they're all three different and not and somewhat similar but not identical but can be for some you know when it comes to a second adolescence for queers there's also a forced celibacy at least for myself someone that has enjoyed conversion therapy you know leading with sexuality and not identity is how I identify because many people won't question or ask how I affirm my gender they'll just simply go with what they consider based upon internalized implications of heteronormative environments or spaces and what I've learned is that for me for celibacy was because I was in fear of explaining myself or body I was in fear of explaining my traumas I was in fear of explaining what I was you know currently processing and so that not only unhealed portion of me helped me to understand, hey, what you're not addressing is addressing you because you're not able to truly, you're not really able to truly have true intimacy, whether platonic, romantic, sexually, or physically. You know, I hold a lot of my friends' hands. 
I hug my friends. You know, a lot of people think that's weird that they're like, hey, why are you hugging and touching on your friends? A lot of my friends first provide consent. I too ask for their boundaries. Um, and it's non-romantic and it's platonic. And it's also, like I said, consensual. But I grew up in a in a touch-focused environment, strictly platonic, non-romantic, non-sexual. Holding my grandmother's and my grandparents' hand every day, every time I saw them, cuddling with them and watching TV every day. That was a part of our thing. Like, after we'd have dinner, lunch, and tea time, we everybody would be literally curled up on the couch. Cousins, everybody just be sitting there around my grandparents sitting there around my you know my great uncle we'd just be sitting there their arms would be on the couch we'd be uh, we would be literally underneath their arms just sitting there all of us just loaded up and you know I realized that there's a repression that is voluntary from my end with the second adolescence as a queer person because that erasure as a friend mentioned to me and brought to my attention it is a part of self-harm because I'm trying to not only combat societal stigma but also social isolation you know when I'm not when I'm voluntarily erasing myself this self-harm and indirectly erasure of my identity allows me to not be truly seen and heard so I'm isolated through the distance I place because of the lack of vulnerability you know and the 2023 psychology today's the importance of healing shame the LGBTQ community write-up which is a beautiful article definitely check it out it's on psychology today it's their 2023 article the importance of healing shame in the LGBT community it talks about chosen family and tribe holding not only you accountable but what that looks like you know, a friend of mine that I met out, you know, for not for lunch, but to work together, they held me accountable when I it came to me expressing my not only gender, but me expressing my sexuality. They're like, hey, you're erasing yourself like you're present there. And I'm like, you're right. And I need to become more forward thinking with how present, how accountable I'm going to hold myself. But when other people hold me accountable, I need to respect if it is if, if it's with good intentions and a whole heart because they're helping me to understand who I am and how to cope with the shame that I've used to help navigate the trauma I've endured. And as a result of that trauma, you know, a lot of LGBTQIA plus individuals may turn to negative coping strategies. And I have, you know, from denying and changing or trying to change, you know, my sexual orientation instead of, you know, trying to figure out what these feelings were. And the community I need to find, I started avoiding LGBTQ plus folk at the the first year of college until I realized it's me that I'm limiting because I'm running so far away from something I'm suppressing. And even through that suppressing of emotions, especially and specifically romantic and sexually, you know, it comes with not only being hyperactive with certain sexual activities, not myself, but I'm saying it can um, but having sex and anonymous, you know, multiple sexual partners. And but for myself, I learned that I developed not a small, but I was beginning to develop a dependency upon certain voice vices and alcohol substances. And that really aided my process of spiraling downward. And for many you know, LGBTQ folk, folk like myself that engage certain negative coping strategies or ways to ground or center themselves. While, you know, those coping strategies may provide some temporary relief, they can also exuberate problems that 
And with maintaining a positive self-worth in personal relationship and overall mental health. And in order for that true elevation of just your personal relationship and a better overall mental health and just a positive self-worthness, it's important that you gain great positive, you know, tools, help, resources, but insight on what it looks like for your mental health. But before we get to that, I just want to remind everyone the impact of shame, not only within the queer victim survivor slash lesbian community, but with that violence and self and that help seeking process looks like, you know, validation and permission versus building confidence to affirm self is where I first took that step. I realized that I didn't need validation or permission from anything externally. I was born with all the validation and permission I need to be self, but I had to build the confidence to affirm who I was and myself without weaponizing that truth because, you know, surviving in the, in the margins and, you know, with my sexual passability, I had a lack of trust for mental health professionals and religious leaders because of the religious and spiritual trauma I had endured. And also that my mom is, you know, a mental health professional. So the usage of shame and how it saturated my ability to express myself and to love and to be loved was a testament of that unhealed trauma and shame combined with substances, which was a recipe for an addiction had I not gained control. And not saying that I was diagnosed, but it's something I acknowledge self for with my awareness and and discernment. You know, after my grandmother passed and after living a life and within my queer community where I'm centered at, I realized the impact of shame, especially on a lesbian or queer, you know, person are a part of the accounts of violence and, and also how I have hidden behind truth in, in defense of someone weaponizing my truth as I'm trying to just simply survive. And so that silence of being alone was a part of the source of how I erased myself because of the weight of the shame, similar to the weight I was carrying about the estrangement from my brother. You know, these special crimes that are inevitable because of the target that I believed I was because of how I identified and affirmed and felt confident to express myself. I realized that the love I wanted, the attention, the appreciation, the community I wanted, it comes without warrant. It comes without an explanation, an excuse, a toll that must be paid. It, it, it is simply because I exist. And I'm deserving, I'm worthy. And those are words that I try to also share with my friends and chosen family. I try to affirm them through the confidence I hope that they build. You know, you are worthy, you are blessed, you are whole, you are seen. You know, I also let people know, hey, I don't completely understand you, but I'm committed to through more experiences with you. And I love you wholeheartedly. And I'm not here to fight your battles, but I'm here to be with you through how you fight your battles so you become a stronger better you and yeah so here are some resources and some help pits that I think may support you throughout just your healing process and the anger that's a part of that trauma and wrestling with you know yourself one engage more LGBTQIA plus communities whether it be art organizations, sports leagues, or book clubs. For myself, Cares Books and More, they have great books and programming. I'm definitely going to join more. Park uh, Avenue 
Baptist Church, a great church in the Atlanta area. I'm definitely going to attend more there. Um, but also participating and affirming practices of prayer and worship. That's something I'm going to do. That's the second recommendation. That's something I'm also practicing myself. So look out for more of that journey. I'm looking to vlog more. So I'll definitely vlog that on my website for those interested. Um, three, spend time with or building relationships with people who are openly accepting of LGBTQ plus folk. Because when not only you join a support group, but when you find allyship in local areas or online, there are so many LGBTQ plus specific recovery groups and group therapy options, but also areas of allyship that uplift you in spaces that you felt you know, traditionally or historically alone that makes you, that can empower you in ways that best, best make you feel seen without having to do strenuous or continuous emotional labor, but also spend time at LGBTQ owned or friendly businesses. Um, There's a lot of places in the Atlanta area, major metropolitan cities, but also look for online spaces as well. I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but a lot of my friends, I actually developed maintained and have had in my life for years I met online like we were friends for a year and a half online and then all of a sudden we're at the same place same time we clicked and then we're like hey you're in my tribe I'm in your tribe and then three four five years later you know I'm going to their wedding or I'm going to you know their dog shower because they just adopted a new dog you know uh shout out to Rebecca love your dog shower but also mentor LGBTQ younger folk or find a mentor. You know, in a lot of the queer spaces, it's easy to meet, you know, your first hookup, your favorite hookup, your favorite liar for the cupping season, you know, your unicorn or your forever love, your person, whatever it is. But when I feel like a lot of people don't go to a lot of queer focused spaces to find community or someone that they, excuse me, ooh, someone that they can just truly really resonate with. And so for myself, um, and let me share this. I believe in community because I am not afforded a lot of experiences with my family, not my mom and dad, but my external family. You know, I like to say I have my mom, my dad, a few of my aunts and uncles, and that's a, a bulk of my family outside of four cousins that I really fuck with really four to six. And that's a great deal of family for others. But for myself, coming from a large family where I had more aunts and uncles, I can count on two hands and let let alone two, you know, using my toes. You know, that's how many aunts and uncles I had that I could just talk to, call on the phone. But now and where I am and how I affirm, you know, my gender, my identity, my sexuality, I realize like, oh, wow, I've lost some people along the way. You know, I've seen them out in top and although everyone may not get there, I may not get there. I realize certain things I want for the mountain hill that I climb up and down, whether I be Sisyphus with the rock on my back, climbing up and up and up, but still yet going back and moving forward is progressively the direction I want to go in, you know, but I'm committed to myself And in that, that gives me the cornerstone and blueprint for what it looks like to be committed to others and giving them what's left over after I prioritize and give myself what I need first. So I really enjoyed you. You know, I'm not going to lie. I have wholeheartedly enjoyed you all with this ghost slash bonus episode. (laughs) You know. This has been an ebb and flow this season of not only season two, but season one. But this episode, Healing, 
the angry part of trauma and wrestling with ourselves. You know, again, we discuss areas of trauma, mental health, but grief, but also addressing spiritual trauma and abuse, but family estrangement and the ebbs and flows of internal dialogue and reflections. But also, let me just give you the three books that I use. This Buoyant Body, The Narratives of Queer Black Boy, and The Waters That Carry Them, an autobiographical account of Bobby Kendrick. This talks about uh, queer black boyhood, B-O-I-H-O-O-D, as whereas, as well as queering sexual violence, radical voices from within the anti-violent movement, edited by Jennifer Patterson, and last but not least, the title I got from Karis Books and More, Invisible Archives, Queer and Feminist Visible Culture in the 1980s by Margaret Calvin, excuse me, edited by Margaret Calvin. I have wholeheartedly appreciate you guys. Continue reading, and I will see you next time. You can't get away from me that fast. Be sure to share, like, comment, stream, favorite librarian in the podcast, anywhere a podcast can be heard. Amazon, Spotify, Google Playlists, everywhere. Also, did you know Favorite Librarian also has curated playlist on Apple Music? Just check out Favorite Librarian. It is a beautiful circulation and curated great collection of vibes that are also paired with certain titles but just also certain emotions and great titles in the meantime continue reading and for more information check out favorite librarian on instagram or www.favoritelibrarian.com